Hello and welcome to God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm educator and headstrong eldest child, Giles Goff. And I'm quirky yet overlooked middle child, Julia Hall. Today, for this very special Christmas episode, we're going to be looking at Little Women, Greta Gerwig's 2019 adaptation of the classic American novel by Louisa May Alcott in 1868. So, Julia, I just need to gauge this. Like, what is your relationship to Little Women? Um, The film is like my first ever foray into this at all. Um, So I knew of the book, I knew it existed, um, Mm -hmm. but I'd never read it. I hadn't watched any of the previous films. Um, It was until you went, hey, you need to watch this. And I went, okay, cool. And I absorbed it into my brain. So this is kind of clean slate, first ever fresh viewing of uh, Little Women. That is fantastic because for the next hour or so of this episode, I am going to be fangirling so damn hard. (laughs) Like, there are moments when you can sort of look in on yourself and notice just how you're passionate about such diverse Mm. things. Like, I can talk for hours about Star Trek, X-Men, Christianity, why Wales is great, and Little Women. Do you know what I mean? It's just such a wide range of Very noble things to be passionate about. Wales is great. So first of all, let's address the elephant in the room. Is Little Women actually a Christmas film? So I had to I had to have a think about this because it's obviously sort of set out over like a period of years and bits of the story happen at different times in the year. Mm. However, love actually happens over the period of a year and there's a, a spring and summer and autumn in there. Yeah. And that's a Christmas film, so I think this that's fair enough. I think thematically it fits in with much more of the sort of Christmas things than Die Hard. Um, yeah, I, I mean the very because uh, we do have a copy of the book in the library, so I have I have sort of skimmed bits of it over the past couple of days. And the very first scene is the is the Christmas scene um, yeah. where they they give their Christmas breakfast to um, the, the Hummels, Hummels, I believe, yeah. um, and then. Uh, in return, Mr. Lawrence gives them a Christmas breakfast, which I think is very much the, the Christmas spirit. Um, 100%. And it was released on Christmas Day. Oh, was it? I didn't even yes, know that. Yes, yeah. Fantastic. So it was released on Christmas Day um, exactly 25 years after the 1994 one. My maths might be off, but it was released the same day as the 1994 one just I see, in the I'm future i i learned recently if <laughs> if you're it. unsure i asked twitter this i said important question is little woman a christmas movie quietly hoping jordan king and geek queen hello nohara might weigh in on this and i said i'm thinking about the christmas special of my podcast i just love alcott i visited her house and it i'd quite like an excuse to talk about her and helen o'hara of like Empire Magazine and Empire Podcast, writer of Women versus Hollywood and creator of the Bar Humbug Podcast, which is all about Christmas movies. She said, that house is so good. The Owls, Beth's Piano. And yes, I think it qualifies. So you can argue with me if you want, yeah. but you've, you've got to argue with Helen O'Hara as well. You know, you can't argue with that. You know, that, that's the expert right there. It is what it is, you know. 
So yes, I did actually visit the house that she That's amazing. Uh, wrote the book in and set it in. Basically, it was 2005. We just finished Camp America. I was staying with a friend in Boston and that friend accompanied me up to like Concord, Massachusetts, just so I could go and visit this one little boxy brown house. Oh, you that's know? awesome. You know how like when you go to Cardiff and it's like you're walking through the set of Doctor Who? Yeah. Um, this is exactly like you're walking through the set of Little Women because the, the house is just so intrinsically linked in with the, yeah. with the story it, because it's sort of so autobiographical and uh, every film version I've seen has sort of tried to stay pretty close to that Orchard House. Mm. Piece of history right there. Uh, now it's time for <gasps> Julia's Facts. Yeah. We all know that, obviously, as you've already mentioned, Little Women, the book, um, was published in 1868. But did you know that there are books that follow Little Women? Um, uh, who do you think you're talking to? Who well, do you, I know you who know, do you but think do, you're talking do, to? do the royal you, our dear listeners, <laughs> do they know? Um, so it was followed by a second part, which was called Good Wives in 1869, yep. then mm-hmm. followed by Little Men, uh, which follows the students of the boys' school that Joe sets up with her husband, Friedrich, in 1871. Yep. And spoiler then alert. the last one, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, they get married. Um, and then the last one is Joe's Boys uh, and How They Turned Out, which was published in 1886. Yeah, um, can you imagine that? As a as a fan, boom! Yeah. Little Women in eighteen sixty eight, which no, but every, the problem is, Little Women and Good Wives kind of get smooshed together a lot. Mm. Like from the, what the I first... was reading, I think a lot of it sort of ends up in in the film um, as yeah. well. The stuff that happens in Good Wives, so hundred percent. So the way the book ends is basically their father comes home for Christmas. Beth does not die in the... And Tiny uh, Tim did yeah. not die. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, oh, Beth's real sick, you know? Literally, my first introduction to Little Women is... Do you remember the episode of Friends where Rachel and Joey swap books? Uh, yes. Rachel's book is the is, is Little Women mm. and, and Joey's book is The Shining. He spoils yeah. something for her. So she Rachel goes, Beth dies. You know? <laughs> no, don't. Don't, she doesn't die does she no no okay all right beth doesn't die. and then just joey ends coming in saying beth's real sick you know so when i've got that in the back of my head when you read little women and thank goodness beth survives till the end of the book you're like mm. okay all right fine wicked brilliant fine great and then you get good wives and yeah. oh check it out beth dies she's dead yeah i didn't Mate. know that previously i'm not sure where i think it's one of those things where you sort of pick it up um that that beth would would pass away um so i did i was prepared for that um it still hurt but i was i was prepared (laughs) so for context i was i my mum had like all four editions of the of the books Mm. i picked up opened the book and it was like oh there's joe she's 15 i'm 15 this is the character I'm going to relate to far mm. too much. You know, that was literally the thought process, you know? And I think anybody who's who sees himself as a, a writer in any way, shape or mm. form um, always relates to Joe. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, but apparently, Little Women, speaking of writers, um, apparently it only took Louise May Alcott 10 weeks to write it. Although wow. apparently this this could have been for one of two reasons. One being she was so consumed in the process that, you know, she didn't eat, she didn't sleep. She, this Her whole, you know, life for those 10 weeks was Little Women. Mm. Or she hated writing it and just wanted to get it done. <laughs> um, because much like Joan, I know a lot of Little Women is based on 
Louisa May Alcott's own personal experiences in her personal life. Um, she also uh, started out writing sort of like pulp, I say pulp yeah. fiction in in popularist kind of fiction. I love the kind of mercenary aspect to it. It's like, okay, are you going to pay me? I'll write whatever you want then, yeah. you know? But that sort of penny dreadful kind of idea. So um, some accounts that I've read sort of indicate that actually she wasn't super jazzed about writing Little Women, um, which I hope is not the case because I think that's quite sad. <laughs> if sort of your, I think the thing that you're most famous for is something that actually you didn't particularly like. It's a bit of a Conan Doyle situation. Um, so hopefully it is because you know she she it consumed her life so much that that she was just obsessed with getting this book finished. Um, rather it's, than always, it's always difficult to like switch genres, isn't it? Mm. Do you know what I mean? J.K. Rowling was so so self-conscious about it that she literally came up with a, a pseudonym yeah. so that she could write about something else. So I think it I think it always feels like a crunching of gears. And if you've if you've been doing like pulpy stuff with like bodice ripping, like sword <laughs> fighting stuff, and then yeah. you're like, so me and my sisters overcame our issues, you know, <laughs> you must be feeling about like I mean the novel burning on Amy's part is pretty hardcore. Oh, like I think mate. that hurt me. Like and there's no backups back then. You're not you're not backing any of that up. That's the whole thing. Yeah, I did like the the non sort of the almost flashback kind of element. Mm. I w- I think if the costuming had been a little, and I know it won an Oscar. Don't don't come for me. And if the costuming had been a bit more on point, I think that that could have really helped tell the story a lot better. Um, Talk me through so- that. So during the 1860s, when this is set, you've got so some sometimes they're wearing stuff that's quite 1860s. Sometimes they're they're really not. The 1860s, uh, if you're looking at it side on, is all about these massive crinoline skirts. So you get rather than a round shape, you're getting more of an elliptical kind of shape. Okay. Um, but these round sleeves are very popular. Um, kind of round shoulders sort of lots of braids it's a very round almost kind of childish silhouette in a way um and then when you move to the sort of early 1870s then you're coming to the first bustle period so you're getting sort of taller updos um there's very much more of a style kind of a slend except when you get to the bustle which kind of the 70s really pushes that bustle out but from front on it's a very slender narrow sleeve kind of physique a more grown-up physique if you will um which i think would contrast nicely with this is when we're children and this is when we're adults um Mm. just to sort of and again i'm also i need some things i need spoon feeding to me a little bit so it's sometimes i was like is this before or after the the thing with the other thing Mm. but i feel i don't know i think if it had just been there i think yeah that would have been a really nice kind of indicator of these two very the two Quite different, different points time in, periods. In, yeah, in... I think they do. I think they did well in some aspects in that they could you could delineate where it was in the timeline based on what Joe's hair is like, you know, yes, at certain points yeah. and things like that. And some just little bits about like the color grading, mm. but it did occur to me that it could be a little bit. Well, actually, it didn't. Somebody had to point out to me that it could be a bit confusing that somebody for someone coming into it cold. But for me, by the time it came out. Little Women had been in my life for like 21 years already. Yeah. So I'm like, screw you guys. We're here for yeah. the hardcore, you know? Yeah, get with it or go home. Get with the program yeah. or, or get off the bus, you know? Uh, apparently, um, so to get talking about the film now, um, 
So Saoirse Ronan, first of all, um, pretty much cast herself um, in the film. <laughs> Apparently she reached out to uh, to Greta Gerwig and sort of went, oh, I'll be playing Joe. And initially <laughs> Greta was quite reluctant because I think they'd just finished Lady Bird. Um, yeah. But then decided that actually that's quite a Joe thing for Saoirse to have done. And so it was like, yeah, well, she's clearly perfect. Which I think is delightful. Mm. Uh, <laughs> just by the way, I like the idea that, doing a film, that um, because I'll, she knew her, she could, it could basically be like, bagsy me, Joe. Yeah. But we have to have an audition. Yeah, but no, I bagsied it, though. But we you have to be fair and honest and make sure we... Yeah, but if they really cared about it, they would have bagsied it first, wouldn't they? You know? Exactly, exactly. And Saoirse Ronan and Florence Pugh apparently used to wrestle each other on set um, before their scenes to kind of get that physical anger between them um, right for each kind of, like, scene. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they're... they're um, mm. Sorry, there's our thought there. You know, yeah, this, they're, they're my, um, Speaking of mm. mine, Giles, what are you, what, uh, what's your thoughts on those? Uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm sure it was uh, it was entirely respectful and respectable, and I'm, I'm conscious this is a, uh, a family show and a, and a Christmas show, so I, I'm just going to say nothing at this point. Yeah, no, just a friendly little, you know, just, little headlock here and there. Just two girls um, being dudes, you know, yeah. just just wrestling like just, you do. Yeah, like to be, like to be fair, like you do. There probably wasn't with your even siblings, any right? mud bath there, you know. I don't yeah. know what anyone's going on about, you know. What What do you mean, Jelly? What? Huh? Yep. <laughs> but yes, apparently to to kind of get that. Because I think there is quite a lot of tension between Joe and Amy yeah. in in the uh, in the film, especially. Um, uh, Amy at one point, I think, mentioning that she sort of hates being in Joe's shadows or mm. being her her second um, to Laurie when uh, he decides he's going to marry her instead. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very complicated and very honest that the fact that. That emotions can be messy, that relationships mm. can be messy, you know? I I don't necess- I can't remember off the top of my head whether the bit about you know when Joe is like, Okay, no, you're right, I probably should marry Laurie and she puts the, the thing yeah. in the it, she puts the letter in the little post box. I can't remember whether that is uh, an addition or an addition of the film or whether that's true to the the book but it is a bit like it's quite heartrending that isn't it Yeah I think it's a real gut punch when then she comes down the stairs and uh oh no it's that's before then it's cuz Laurie's like oh by the way we're married <laughs> Just you know I'm not going to lie I I hate Laurie I'm just going to go ahead and say it Okay all right I, All right talk me through your thought process then. I despise him with every iota of my being oh. um which i at least oh. at least how he is portrayed in this film because Shots um, fired. um he is he is the now the word i want to say uh rhymes uh, with truck but i'll use playboy instead um, okay. because he is the absolute epitome of an 18th uh, 19th century like playboy he's chatting up joe and mm-hmm. then he's he's rude. He, he's negging uh, Meg at the ball. Yeah. On one hand, being oh well, I you know I don't like that you're being frivolous and actually caring about wanting to, to participate in society. How mm. dare you? And then he's like, oh, but dance with me. 
make up your mind, babes. Which one is it? Which one is it? And then, and although, because I talked this through with my mum on the phone yesterday, because mm-hmm. I, I just had to, to vent. Um, apparently in the book, Fred Vaughan, who is in the film is Amy's uh, possibly engaged to be, yeah. doesn't actually exist in the book. Right, okay. At least that's what my mother has reliably informed me. That could be wrong. Um, and I, in a way, I think that, again, paints Laurie in a worse light because this this millionaire or this very rich man that Amy would have married, which, mm. in my view, would have absolutely given her the means to do what she loved, which was painting. Um, you know, that was a, especially in this... And, again, what's discussed quite often in this film is a woman's prospects and marriage as a as an economic proposition i think in amy's words Mm. um which is a very real reality for lack of a better word for a lot of women you know you to marry well sometimes your life depended on it and so then for laurie to swan in and go oh oh amy don't marry him my my guy my guy yeah but this is this is what you're not getting right this is what makes these characters uh, real and, oh, yeah. and makes them, yeah. it's it's not just that they're flawed because like everybody's flawed whatever mm. but it's the fact that the Amy should be like no you had your chance haha <laughs> it's that awkwardness of like I've been so obsessed with your sister and now I see you in a completely different light and I've yeah. got no right to ask this like are you familiar with the concept of the hot window I can guess at the hot window I think I came up with the term but I don't think I came up <laughs> with the concept you know we, we see it all over in in like so much stuff where you see the sort of slightly dowdy homely looking girl gets a, a makeover mm. you know like the, the you're like this the librarian takes off her glasses <laughs> unbuttons yeah. her hair <laughs> And all of a sudden, she's absolutely stunningly beautiful, mm. you know? So just like the hot window, is just that thing of where somebody who wasn't attractive to you any anymore before is suddenly really attractive to you, you know? I mean, yeah. the way I prefaced it is that the window will close at some time, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you can just see that bit where he's like, oh, oh, mm, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, you know and now now full disclosure the way he talks to meg at the party is horrendous but what's interesting is if you try and juxtapose that with uh i think like the 1994 version Mm. and again we're going back decades since i saw that one the girls are even more horrible they're even more superficial and meg is really bending over backwards to fit in with these people so again yeah it kind of comes down to how they're depicted because you yeah. could there are other ways of shooting that scene where laurie seems like the the good guy you know he's not playing yeah. the game. he's like i want you to be your authentic self yeah but you're right it does come across as like negging um, and then he realizes i've really screwed myself over yeah please come and dance with me i just i just want to make this better yeah. this is one of the things i do love about laurie is he's so uh he's he's incredibly flawed but he's flawed yeah like a teenage boy is flawed having yeah. spent some time as a teenage boy myself i can really relate to those kind of yeah just like gear crunchingly bad awkward mm. moments you know like I think, at least for, I think for Laurie, he has a want to change. Yeah. Um, I think the way that he's portrayed in the 2019 film is perhaps maybe they've done him a bit dirty in in exaggerating. I think some of those kind of playboy flaws of his. 
Um, yeah. I, but I just, I just didn't, I, I didn't like him. Okay. I all didn't, right. I, it just, no shade to Timothy Chalamet. He did Dim- an excellent job as a, a character. And in that yeah. it's, you know, he's a flawed character and that's, that's fine. I just, I just don't like him. I just, okay. I can't, I can't. The red flags is too, is flagging. <laughs> um, okay. All right. Do me a favor. Watch the uh, 1994 um, version with Christian Bale playing Laurie and tell <gasps> Christian me... Christian Bale if... is Laurie in the 1994? Yeah, I know, right? oh, okay, Batman I'm is I'm Laurie. Um, watch it in that and see if your feeling is the, is the same. It might, And it'd be fascinating to see mm. how, you, how you think. I do anyway, want to read the book now as well to, to we get a full round of off, experience. Off, tap, off topic. <laughs> I'm sure you must have like another fact for me. I do have one last fact. Or a sort of a couple, really, um, that can kind of be squished into one. But um, back on the on the costuming kind of side, mm-hmm. um, the artist uh, whose name escapes me, but I will refer to my notes here, Winslow Horn. I think mm-hmm. I've pronounced, I think I've got that right. But his artist, uh, his work, his art was very influential for for Greta Gerwig and the um, costume designer. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, I think some pieces, including Joe's hat that she wears in the beach scene, are like basically reproductions from uh from those paintings yeah uh, and each sister also had their own color palette um which uh, they kind of stick through the film so if you uh joe is red yeah is is meg blue she isn't blue but blue is one of the other sisters would amy be blue, blue? amy's blue right okay is beth green no but one of the ah. other sisters is so Meg is green. Meg is green. Right. Okay. I I have no idea what uh, what Beth is then. So Meg is uh, supposed to be lavender and green. Um, Joe is red and indigo. Beth right. is brown and pink, and then Amy is blue, um, which is subtle enough. I think that I didn't. You you don't immediately go. Oh, Beth is clearly pink. But yeah. having I think when that when I read that I kind of thought back and went, oh yeah, actually that does make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- uh, I sort of I think in the earlier scenes when they're children, they tend to wear their colours more, or at least more of them, and yeah. then when they kind of grow up. So I think Joe has that sort of red scarf that she wears, the little kind of neckerchief sort of scarf. Um, so the older that they get, the less sort of pronounced yeah the colour palettes are. But Marmy has all of those colours, and it's why she's in quite a lot of paisley prints and other sort of. Oh, um, that's fascinating. Multicoloured kind of uh, fabric to yeah. represent all of her girls, basically, all of her little women, uh, which I think is quite nice. Uh, I wasn't aware of that, but I love that. That's fantastic. Um, but I'm, that's me. I'm facted out. Fantastic. I have told you all I know. Thank you very much, Julia, for that. Now we have a wonderful guest for this one. I'm going to let her introduce herself. Uh, hi, I'm Sarah Cook. I am an author of erotic historical fiction, mostly working and dabbling in the Victorian era. I am also a Victorian era enthusiast and a film marketer. Fantastic. Sarah, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast today. I'm thrilled to be here talking about one of my favourite things. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so let's get into it. What can you tell us about Little Women? Oh, well, Little Women is, I think, the the best historical feminist literature for young women and young girls that was uh, based on, a, it's a book by Louisa May Alcott, published mm-hmm. in 1868, and it has been adapted to the film, the film seven different times um, over the course of like 100 
100 plus years mm. and most recently the 2019 version by the wonderful immutable Greta Gerwig <laughs> and it revolves around four March sisters as they uh, transform from young women to from young girls to young women you summed that up beautifully there so let's talk about um, a lot of people growing up uh, <laughs> elder millennials like myself will probably be more used to like the 1990s version of Little Women with um Winona Ryder as Joe. Mm-hmm. So what is it about uh, Greta Gerwig's version? How did that come about? Well, Greta Gerwig, like most women, and especially like most young women, has always been inspired by little women. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's uh, apparently the story goes that one day she was moving house and she was looking at her books and she found little women again and she was reading through it and forgot how great it was. Um, and also she said that it just, um, as a writer herself, the the story of Joe was something that kind of inspired her, and she wanted to to re redo that and make it a, a new version for for this new generation. That brings me to my next point: the, this new version of Little Women. It's it's the same but different. It's sort of how would you say? It, what would you say are some of the main differences in this version? Uh, my biggest one is the how they treat Amy I think mm. is always a different it's a different aspect a lot of people see Amy as sort of um naive and foolish and uh quite villainous at times mm. I mean for, as a writer burning someone's manuscript is probably like the most heinous act you could commit against them. Do you know what? I'm, I- I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's for me the biggest difference is the fact that she tells the entire story um non-chronologically we have like mm-hmm. it's like jumping back a- and forth in time and if you see it chronologically and you see Kirsten Dunst Amy burn the manuscript you're like okay well screw her then she can yeah. get absolutely stuffed and it doesn't it doesn't help that in that version the adult amy from what i remember was a bit cold and and unfeeling you know you couldn't really she was very difficult to empathize with yeah absolutely but there's something about florence Pugh mm. and the writing here that really you can i even the act itself i can sort you can understand that it just comes from a bit of petulance and jealousy and uh and you can sort of see how amy's life has been impacted by joe's life you know like Mm. how she's always like in the shadow of joe and joe's getting the things that she joe doesn't necessarily want but amy wants Mm. and you can kind of see where that kind of festers a little bit more in greta goings with that kind of jumping chronological and also florence Pugh has this wonderful way of just eliciting empathy in a character that necessarily doesn't have it in previous adaptations um and then you have this wonderful monologue that amy has in her adult sequences with laurie where you can sort of see that for women it's it's necessary to marry and to marry well because being an artist isn't necessarily like a feasible act and that's kind of where a lot of amy's like uh how she's been raised and how she is like pushed and you can sort of see why she would think that way and and, and then you can sort of somewhat understand the manuscript. And then you also get the sequence where you can see that she's actually apologetic and she can understand what she's done wrong and she's trying so hard to 
sort of like work our way back and it's never quite the same with joe and amy and i think that's really beautifully done as well that you can sort of explore that even as adults there's still tension between them and there always will be yeah i rewatched gerwig's version recently and the line where amy says to laurie don't don't do that to me when i have loved you my my whole life and mm-hmm. and it, you get a real sort of insight into amy's internal life there which we never see anywhere else because the book and from what I remember the 90s version is so resolutely Joe's film uh, and Joe's story that you don't nobody else really gets a look in do you know what I mean yeah exactly and that kind of bit where she's like I can't be second best like I can't be a replacement Mm. is basically what Amy's like and it, it must obviously she knows that Laurie was in love with Joe and Joe thwarted his advances um and his marriage proposal and then Amy Laurie's now paying attention to Amy and for Amy that's heartbreaking because she's never going to in her mind especially at this moment she'll never be number one Mm -hmm. she'll always be second best and that's how she's felt all of her life she's felt second best to joe yeah no that's absolutely fascinating and i think it's it felt to me like this version was more pragmatic like i say the 90s version is very much about follow your art and follow your dreams and and uh and all this sort of stuff whereas this version was like, no, we we do actually need to eat. <laughs> you do need to su- to support your family. So marrying rich is just something you're going to have to get used to. Exactly. And I also think that this version does a lot with um, Meg's storyline a lot better than any other adaptation. Whereas Joe's very scornful of the fact that Meg wants to settle down and be married and have kids. Mm. Um, and whereas Joe, and I I understand Joe on, on a deep level where she's like, well, you shouldn't be settling down. Women are made to be more than, than this. You should be a great actress. And Meg was like, this is my dream. Like, why are you taking that from me? Yeah. Like, it may not be as glamorous as how you want my life to live, but I'm happy and I want to marry and have kids and live that life. I feel like it's so beautifully woven in this in this story that women can have they can have it or they can have love and like a relationship and a career but Mm -hmm. they can also have like marriage and be happy being a homemaker and be at home uh, and all that kind of different threads which is why I find Greta Gerwig's version so beautifully captured 100% listen Sarah thank you so much for finally coming on the the podcast it really it's a real joy to have you on thank you so much I absolutely could Um, I do have to say before I go that there is a 1930s version a 1933 version by George Kikor which I think everyone should watch it's not the best version of it but it does have Catherine Hepburn I was going to say that's the, that's the Catherine Hepburn <laughs> version. Catherine Hepburn, and if some people are like, "Oh, I can't believe Shasha Ronan as like a young girl," that the time flips mm-hmm. for a girl's version. I'm like, you should see Catherine Hepburn trying to be like a 12 year old girl because it is just <laughs> it's it's brilliant. I like it's it's beautifully done for the time, and I always cry when Beth dies in every single version yeah. of Little Women. Yeah, but it. If you want to see like ridiculous aging down, that that's what <laughs> threw me the most actually was um, in this one how Florence Pugh could just be a twelve-year-old one minute and like twenty-one in the other. Like, how is is there some kind of is this some kind of CGI going on I, here? It just it, oh, there is one bit in twelve-year-old young Amy that Florence Pugh has this line delivery, and I'm like, that's a twelve-year-old girl, yeah. and it's when she sees Laurie for the first time, she mm. goes hi just hi i'm amy trying to be older and i'm like that makes her so much younger yeah i know man florence pugh's got some serious game okay awesome let's thank you very much let's leave it there of course thank you so much oh do you have anything you'd like to plug by the way oh yes i would love to plug my book diary of murders Mm -hmm. which is a dark victorian erotic murder mystery set in 1895 you know those christians they love their dark erotic mystery 
Christmas, you know. It's got a very <laughs> spicy Christmas scene. I mean, perfect for the holiday. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, Julia, that was Sarah Cook. What do you think? I'm still, I'm still on the erotic murder mystery setting. I've that's on my Christmas list immediately. Um, <laughs> I need, I need multiple copies just to stash around the house. You know, that sounds incredible. Um, yeah, hundred percent. Now it's time for <gasps> finding the faith in the film. One of the trickiest things about finding faith parallels in Little Women is that it's kind of everywhere and nowhere at the same time. On the one level, you could just divorce it completely from any kind of religious or faith-based themes and just focus on the feminist struggles of the young women in the 1860s. On the other hand, I see critics who get like really mad at this adaptation because it hasn't talked about the religious parallels as much as they would have liked. And I think part of the problem of this is that large sections of the book are so heavily didactic they are so much trying to teach you a moral lesson which is might have been entirely appropriate in like the victorian era but that kind of style of storytelling really sort of struggles to survive in this in the kind of modern world you know one of the things i found particularly about this uh film and this story is that rather than having like explicit faith parallels, I felt a lot of the time it kind of reflects what it's like to be a Christian and a lot mm. of the kind of um, issues that you deal with kind of come through in this. Yeah. In this and it's and that whilst the, the modern world might have moved on in a lot of ways there's large swathes of kind of Christianity which are still struggling with some kind of the more patriarchal stuff. Are you with me? Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. But I want to get into into the weeds on this and try and look at one of the things that really kind of complicates finding the Christian parallels in Little Women. And that is Louisa May Alcott's belief in transcendentalism. Are you familiar with that at all? I am not. You'll, you'll have to educate me, but that sounds fascinating. Okay, so transcendentalism is a philosophical, spiritual, and literary movement that developed in the, like, the late 1820s and 1830s in like the New England area of the United States. And a core belief is inherent goodness of people and nature. And while society and its institutions have corrupted the purity of the individual, people are their best when truly self-reliant and independent. Okay. okay, so uh, a little bit of background for you. Louise May Alcott, Alcott's father was Bronson Alcott, and he is an education reformer and like a free thinker, and he's so revolutionary that he's really bad at keeping a job. He keeps setting up schools, and everyone's like, "Yeah, this is great, this is fantastic." And then, then we're like, "Okay, we're going to teach the kids how to debate and do critical thinking." And then the parents are like, "Whoa, we we don't like no, we don't, we don't do want, that here. <laughs> we don't want the kids to do that." So he would the or he would also overspend way too much and then they would have to sort of move close the school sometimes like moving house to try and escape their debtors to give you an idea the family moved 20 times in 30 years oh my gosh that sounds exhausting absolutely 100% i think part of the reason maybe why she loves orchard house so much is it's finally just this sense of feeling settled you know yeah. like um, so to give you an idea, the, these 
these transcendentalists they're like one of those kind of unique american religious or philosophical movements so like you know over here we have a a state we have effectively a state religion of like yeah protestantism yeah, you know thanks, anglicanism Henry. Thanks, thanks. That's came handy. And because the Americans don't have that, it's kind of a, a bit of a free for all. Effectively, yeah. that's why we get like Mormonism, Adventism, Methodism, all this sort of stuff. You know. Yeah. So to give you an idea, some of the transcendentalist pioneers are like Ralph Waldo Emerson, David Henry David Thoreau, and they're great friends of the Alcotts. Yeah. And as time goes on, Bronson Alcott's beliefs about transcendentalism seem to like radicalize him a little bit you know they live in a commune at some points and he starts to believe things like you shouldn't be paid for anything you do and only survive on what you can make yourself which as i'm sure you can appreciate really makes just living difficult yeah it's giving like zero waste crunchy mom uh, of the 2023s who, <laughs> who doesn't use gmos <laughs> yeah those those people who are just exhausting you mm. know so Bronson becomes a bit of a waste of space as a result. So uh, Louisa kind of sees it as her job to support the family through her writing work, which is why you get so heavily the sense of, I'll make some money by by writing some words and selling it, you know? And I quite like it that when it comes to fictionalizing her family life, she just writes her dad out of the picture by... <laughs> respectively portraying him as a clergyman who goes off to to be uh, a chaplain in the union army during the civil war it's like oh and and dad's away he's far far away doing something flipping useful rather than just sitting around (laughs) navel gazing do you know what i mean so there are references to transcendentalism as well as christianity in the novel which don't 100 percent sit well with each other and there's a part of me that's like tempted to wonder whether Alcott put in the references to Christianity either because A, it was like just all around her, it's it's synonymous with being a good person. It's like Natalie described it last lesson about being a cultural Christian, you know? Yeah. Um or perhaps Louisa was like, Hey, do you know what? I'll stick in some God stuff and it'll definitely sell the book better, you know? There's a twisted part of me that kind yeah. of respects that. Do you know what I mean? Like, I need to make some money. I need. I'm going to write this book. It'll sell better if I have more of this. And that's. Do you know what? If you've not, if your dad is is just checked out in terms of earning a living, yeah. then fair enough. You know. Yeah. So the March sisters kind of live out their faith without really ever like explaining it or evangelizing it. And in a world where you would be assumed to be a Christian, yeah, I can see why you you wouldn't need that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It would be the more feminist aspects back then that would have been more, like, revolutionary than than the the faith stuff. And now, like, a hundred and sort of 60-odd years later, it's now kind of the other way around. Like, of course we believe that a woman should make a living through her own works and this sort of stuff and now it's the it's the i shall make myself a better christian that's the stuff that doesn't quite sit right do you know what i mean yeah so what's really interesting is that in the book they're less inspired by the bible itself and more inspired by one of the greatest works of bible fan fiction uh the pilgrim's progress have you ever heard of that one I have not. This is again. This is. Not, oh, dude! I get, this, I mean, Bible fan fiction is not. 
a phrase I thought I would hear nor myself repeat. Um, no, but you've heard so of I, like Paradise Lost, you know. So there's oh, oh I suppose. And I mean, uh, Dante's yeah. Inferno is like Dante's Inferno is self insert. And then I went to heaven, and everybody thought I was ace. You know this sort of stuff. You know. Yeah, it's a mood. So, it's we've been there. Who yeah. hasn't been there? Exactly. So, okay, maybe strictly speaking, Pilgrim's Progress isn't necessarily fanfic because it's... Uh, do you know what? who else I learned? Anne Rice. Anne freaking Rice, vampire queen herself, wrote Christian fanfiction. She wrote, like, a load of books about, like, Christ's time in Egypt and all this sort of stuff. So there is... Uh... Y'all can't see this right now, but I'm shooketh. My jaw is on the floor. <laughs> Queen of some... Darkness herself. Yeah. Be writing about Jesus Christ. Incredible. 100%. Like, that woman played jump rope with the I'm an atheist, no, I'm a Christian, no, I'm an atheist, no, I'm a Christian. Like, just put us all to shame. It just, uh, as somebody who writes Christian fiction uh, and Christian narrative fiction myself, I kind of feel like I'm in good company with some of this stuff. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So, Pilgrim's Cro- Progress by John Bunyan is actually an allegory. It's an allegorical uh, text, and it comes out in 1678. And it's probably one of the most significant works of theological fiction in English literature. And it is like the forerunner of any kind of narrative aspect of Christian media. You know, it's been translated into 200 languages. It's never been out of print. It's had a, a, a influence on people like C.S. Lewis, Herman Melville, Charles Dickens, George Bernard Shaw, William Thackeray, Charlotte Bronte, Mark Twain, John Steinbeck, Enid Blyton, and obviously Louisa May Alcott. That's quite a Hall of Fame. I know, That you right? just rattled off there. I know. So, there's this one character in, in it called Apollyon who is like the main antagonist in Pilgrim's Progress. You know, he's the main, he's the big bad. And Bunyan didn't pick that name out of nowhere. That name actually comes from uh, a reference in uh, the book of Revelation. You know, like the last book of the Bible. Yeah. You, have you heard of that one at all? Yes, yeah. The the uh, second coming and horns and bowls. I think there's bowls involved somewhere. Yeah, in, in bowls, there. angels, rivers, beasts. Yeah. It is crazy now like uh one way to look at it is there is a, a prophetic um a prophetic reveal of things to come in the future another way to look at it is that it is the apostle john talking in coded language to other uh believers at the time relating to like the destruction of jerusalem and, and all that sort of stuff we have talked more about um about revelation in earlier stuff and i am absolutely not going to get into it again because that will melt your brain i, I think we discussed it for uh, infinity war didn't we probably uh, if i remember yeah. rightly when uh, obviously right. everybody gets in uh, let me give you just <laughs> give you just a taster of uh revelation i'm going to read out a few verses from uh verses 9 uh, sorry chapter 9 verses 7 to to 11 The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. 
they had as a king over them the angel of the abyss, whose Hebrew name is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, brackets, that is destroyer, okay? So, like, that is some full-on stuff, do you know what I mean? That is like... That is like the Beatles, like Helter Skelter, White Album nonsense, right there. Do you know what I oh, mean? Yeah, yeah. horse size, just horse size locusts to begin with. You yeah. could have stopped there, and I would have been horrified. Yeah. But now they have like <laughs> teeth, and also like hair with like women's armor. hair. So, like, can you imagine? Like, they've got a love, you know, they, oh, these horrendous out. giant locusts, but with like hair, like they've just stepped out of the salon. You know. Oh, God. I love that for them. Like, <laughs> uh, for any Torchwood nerds out there, um, Abaddon is also the big bad in the uh, as the, the series one of Torchwood. So it's a Abaddon and Apollyon have he's, been. He's also a, a Warhammer forty k uh, uh, Primark for my for my forty k fans out there. I mean, it's uh, basically when you want to describe somebody who is the big bad, but you mm. can't say the name Satan because it's too obvious, yeah. you know. So anyway, they are heavily into reading the the Pilgrim's Progress. There's literally chapters of the book where they they're reading it to each other and then discussing it. Okay, so chapter eight is called Joe meets Apollyon, and in the book. Each March sister is like depicted as having a fault that she must overcome to get through, usually with yeah. like the mother's explicit guidance, you know. And the entire first part of the novel is structured around John Billion John Bunyan's moralizing allegory Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah. So I think for Joe it's her anger, for Meg it's a vanity, for Beth it's her shyness, and for Amy it's her propensity to burn people's only manuscript, you know? Yeah, Amy. Damn it, Amy. Have a word with yourself, you know. So the inspiration for the Bible isn't as direct, but it is, it's like two steps removed, if that makes sense, you know? Yeah. And the aspects that I was I was talking about with um how it kind of mirrors kind of Christian life is well, like one of the scenes in the film, I don't know if you remember, just mm. on Meg's wedding day and there joe and meg are in the in their room together and joe drops to her knees and yeah. begs her not to get married like we'll run away you'll be an actress yeah. all right you know yeah she she tries to convince meg to, to become an actress and save the sisters and then meg sort of tells her just because my dreams are different than yours it doesn't yeah. mean they're unimportant and mm. this feels like it's the kind of lesson that you need to learn in church life and just feminism yeah, in general as you were saying i think it's if you want to get married and have children and that's your dream that's absolutely just as valid as i want to be a business tycoon and yeah. like sell stocks and and get you know hell of money you should be allowed to choose yeah um, that's, and that's, that's what, the crux of the point you know, that's what uh, i remember like a, a friend of mine explaining to me it was like no feminism isn't we all go out and we all do impressive things and we'll it's like it's having the choice, you know? Yeah. And some people will often sort of put feminism and Christianity at odds with each other. And for those people, I just politely suggest that they get in the bin, you know, that they get yeah. in the bin and, and stay there <laughs> because that we don't have time for that nonsense. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's one of those things where uh, particularly people can also see it in like not just your your job your job your vocation that you do but also 
the the kind of roles you'll do on a Sunday. You know, yeah. like if you're up preaching, that's amazing. If you're leading the worship, that's amazing. And if you're part of the car park team, well, that's fine too. And that's lovely. And that's still important. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So also just the, the, the roles that people do as volunteers, people can sort of look at look at those with differing levels of of respect effectively you yeah. know also christianity has been one of the last holdouts of a thing called have you heard of complementarianism I, I sound very uneducated i have no idea what that is dude i like <laughs> when i hear an incredibly intelligent person not knowing a thing that i know i'm like oh thank goodness i've got something to contribute to the conversation so complementarianism was this notion, I'm going to try and say it without my sarcastic voice, that men and women have different callings and have different roles that they fulfill. And that might be fine up until the point where you start to notice that it always seems to be the women's job to make the tea and it's the men's job to run things and do yeah. all the teaching and the rest of it. And mm. <sighs> I'm sure there are people out there yelling at their speakers right now saying, no, that's not what complementarianism is. And I'm sure it's, I'm sure there's much more complicated, uh, interesting ways of looking at it, Mm. but that is how it often ends up manifesting. And that is one of those things that is so really does leave itself open to abuse and exploitation quite easily. Being able to see that somebody else's, dreams and vocation and the role that they play is just as important as yours is something i feel like lots of people need to get their head around you know yeah uh the next thing i wanted to talk about was obviously proposing and getting turned down okay now you have uh made your your feelings for laurie perfectly clear that laurie is just a truck boy can't be doing yeah no can't be dealing with that for the longest time like unrequited love was my safe space. Do you know what I mean? It's like, okay, yeah. I know where I am with this. I'm going to like you. You're not going to like me back. It's going to be miserable. I'm going to lo- eat lots of ice cream. Watch that episode of Buffy where Angel breaks up with her in the sewers. Oh. And I'm going to I'm gonna drive along at night listening to Taylor Swift at obnoxiously loud levels yeah. at about 60 miles an hour. That I all knew, you know? Well, yeah, perfectly normal things to be doing. Please tell me you have some experience of that feeling of when you want to be with someone because you seem absolutely perfect for each other, but the other person is just not feeling it. Yeah, I mean, in in my in my particular experience, I'm thinking of. Um, I, I thought that would be the case, but actually, I ended up dodging a bullet. So, thank you, that person. <laughs> oh yeah, we've, we've for all... not being interested in me because I, I it, it came out a lot better for me in the end. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's rough, especially because um, if you kind of get and I and I use the word friend zone very tentatively. Yeah. Um, because I I don't think the friend zone really exists because I think you're all you know if you were friends to begin with then you can somewhat still be friends afterward. It's not like a special extra zone. Yeah. Um, but you know when you are friends beforehand and you kind of bear your soul you then sit there and go oh no you know have i have i made it awkward have i made yeah. it different and you yeah. know you, you don't know whether you should because you want to kind of continue being friends with that person because you, you you like them and you want to be in their life but then you're like oh well now am i you know being being weird and then you end up withdrawing too much and then you'd be weird because you withdraw it's it's a tricky situation yeah. it's 
Yeah, and so yeah, and... Buffy episode swiftly on Max. Yeah. What all ice that... cream? What else can you do? All all those all the sun stuff, you know. Um, and uh, obviously in this, uh, Laurie becomes Captain Friend Zone. Um, and he does what I think so many of us would do if we had the chance is that he goes to Paris, becomes a bit of a lush, and sort of gets drunk and parties with cute girls. And yeah. no, um, that is a move to be fair. You know, it's like we like. Let's not pretend we wouldn't all do that if we had the choice. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But I yeah. think obviously again, talking about Christian subculture, there's this thing of guys proposing to girls, and this is particularly prevalent in in America. We have this as well. But this thing of like, God told me I was going to marry you, and it's like, oh, okay, you know. And it, yeah. I mean, speaking as somebody who who has proposed to to somebody, my process was like. You you have to pray about it beforehand because you have to know that you've you've definitely thought this through and and gone yeah. through all the processes and, and the rest of it. So my process tends to be, Lord, I I think I I think I want to marry this person. Um, if you think it's a bad idea, tell me no. Okay, all right, let's do that then. You know, I but I would no way in no way interpret that as God told me to that I was going to marry you. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So compared to just how badly some people handle the proposing and getting turned down, I think Laurie does a pretty good Actually, job of yeah, it. Yeah, no, to to his credit, um, he he tries he he tries to persuade respectfully. So, but when Joe puts her foot down, he he does respect that. Um, yeah. which actually I I do give him points for. Um, maybe I was a little harsh. But I do, yeah, yeah I do get. I We're mean, grading I on points. a curve, aren't we? Here, it's you know, the basic, you know, it's a bare minimum. Yeah, yeah, it is. Boys, the, it, you know, if you get turned down, you can be sad about it, you know. Yeah. But you gotta respect the decision, my guys. It's it's been my experience. Sometimes I've seen where where they're like, they they want you to be okay with it very quickly, you know, and you're like, no, I just I I need to go over here. I've got my. I've got my process, you know, it's Buffy season three, and I've got, I, you know, I, I, before I know what's happening, I'm in the pastries aisle, and you've got to give somebody the space to, to kind of grieve that, that thing, yeah. um, but it's, you've then got to remember that you've got to be okay with it, does that make sense, Yeah. you know? Um, I think the flip side to it is that a lot of women, when you're constantly hit over the head with the idea that sort of it's like marriage and kids and family life is yeah. the standard that you feel like that's what you should be aiming for and as a result there are a lot of internalized pressures on women to say yes yeah. even when the red flags are, are, are clearly apparent you know uh last thing we're going to talk about and you might want to get your hankies out for this one because we are going to be talking about Beth dying. Oh. So there's the there's the obvious parallels in that um, Beth dies in book two in Good Wives. It's because her um, illness comes back. I can't remember what is it, Scarlet Fever or she definitely some... gets Scarlet Fever in the film. I don't yeah. know if that then well, recurs yeah. later. And the reason she gets Scarlet Fever is because she went to the Hummels. Because she wanted to help them, and she was the only one that 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 would, you know, and she hadn't had uh, scarlet fever as a child, so it became yeah. much more dangerous to her. So Beth is she's a little bit of a Mary Sue in the sense of she's a bit too p- 
perfect, a bit too yes. idealised. But somehow Alcott manages to pull it off. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You you end up sort of you, you end up kind of loving her in spite of yourself. I think you know. Yeah, I think um, she's quietly. Um, virtuous does that make sense it, yeah. it's not paraded i think as how virtuous beth is she just gets on with it yeah 100 percent. so in essence you see her effectively kind of sacrificing herself uh to help other people you know so the the sort of messiah the christ parallels are, are sort of really apparent in there you know and i think one other thing that's really important is that when she does die it doesn't seem to shake their faith at all. Nobody changes how they feel about God just because yeah. their uh, their sister and their their daughter has died, and I, I like that because it shows even in tragedy, God is still God. You know, those yeah. people who lose their faith when they are beset with tragedy, I sometimes think maybe it was quite. It might have been a bit of a shallower faith to begin with. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If it's because the the entire point of the religion was something terrible happening to somebody innocent and i Mm. i just like the way that she manages to come up with like a a christ-like figure in the form of beth and make it not be cheesy and that's really really impressive you know i mean jesus is the main guy you know he's the guy that everybody knows and i think it's it's trying to do a subtle parallel of jesus is as you say very difficult um when a lot of the time it's you know, the only, I I know Jesus, I can probably name you maybe a handful of, of other biblical figures, um, mm-hmm. but only now having, you having pointed it out, that now I've gone, oh yeah, actually, I suppose when you think about it, Beth and JC, they kind of have that same trajectory. Yeah, it's, um, it's the one key, key thing, you know, somebody who is like, I want to say morally superior, but I know that sounds condescending, but she is though you know she yeah. is like morally superior yeah to i mean the, the scene in the film it uh when you know beth saying look i'm gonna go to the hummels and i think joe and, and amy both kind of go uh well like we'll go in a like when my mom asked me hey can you put the laundry out oh yeah like i'll do it in a bit yeah like i'll do it later you know i'll i'll get round to it um exactly how you know teenage me would have probably reacted to doing what I viewed as a chore, which would be go around to the Hummels and give them blankets and food and stuff. So that was, I felt, was quite a realistic sort of, I could see bits of my childhood, you know, in there when, you know, you've got to do this chore that you don't want to do. Um, But Beth will selflessly do that chore um, anyway, despite despite what it costs her really in the end. 100%. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up our Finding the Faith in the Film. I appreciate this might have been a slightly more meandering episode than usual, but... Sorry, I'm a rambler. Hey, I'm a rambler too, (laughs) but I flipping love Little Women. I absolutely adore it, and I couldn't think of anything else that I wanted to talk about for our Christmas episode beyond this one. So, if you have been, thank you so much for listening. We will see you at some point in the new year. Full disclosure... Me and Claire have another kid on the way. I do not know what we were thinking. Um, So that might have a a knock-on effect on when I can get episodes out. But this isn't the last you've heard from us. In the meantime, Julia, have you had a good time? I've had a great time. This has been a blast as always. Fantastic. Me too. Thank you very much for listening, guys. Merry Christmas. Bye. Bye.
Godot Films hosting created by Giles Goff. That's me. Mixing and editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh. And our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Fact checking and waffle editing by literally no one. I've gone drunk with the lack of oversight. Please rate and review. Unless it's a one star, in which case, yeah, you know what, fair enough. We've had a lot going on, so my apologies if this isn't up to our usual sparkling standard. But do me a favour and give us five stars anyway, or I'll come round your house and burn the only copy of your manuscript. Merry Christmas, guys, and we'll see you in the new year.